In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, the Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for, uh, for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Welcome to the Magic Hour here at the Forum Club at the Athletic LA. Brian Kamenetsky, Andy Kamenetsky, uh, continuing Andy with our um, our deep dive into sports movies. Um, this week, just you and me taking on a movie. And I feel like it's appropriate that we didn't have a guest because it's just you and me taking on a movie that I think you and I are the only people who saw. Yeah, the, uh, um, this was a movie... Uh, uh, without limits um that came out in 1998 that you and i really realized just how few people had seen this movie and that really this is like a club that exists of you me and the people in the movie and we'll get into that when the athletic did their top 100 uh sports movies of all time and without limits didn't make the top 100 not because our internal voting inside the athletic didn't give it a good score. The overwhelming majority of people who saw this movie thought it was great. The problem was not enough people Nobody saw, saw it, it to for it to, qual- to yeah, qualify, it qualify for the top one hundred. Yeah, I this to me goes down as not just one of the most criminally underseen sports movies of all time. It is one of the most criminally underseen movies of all time. It's the story of. Uh, the iconic track star Steve Prefontaine, who died 45 years ago. It was a 1975 uh, car crash that killed Pre. And, you know, it's still funny. Like, he, as much as I think we, we acknowledge track stars or people like that anyway, you know, in, in this country, um, like, he's still an iconic name. And it's 45 years ago. It's been, been about 70 years old now. Um, this movie, Andy, which was produced by Tom Cruise, yes. who was originally. Uh, you know, consider it might play pre in, in the movie. Uh, it was directed by Robert Town, who, of course, wrote uh, Chinatown. Also, Robert Town, is, is, should we talk for a second here about how unusual a career Robert Town has had? He, he's written, he wrote Shampoo, Chinatown, Days of Thunder. He wrote Mission Impossible. He was uncredited for things like Bonnie and Clyde. He was also credited as P.H. Vazic. On Greystoke, which is a horrible film. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's god-awful. Um, but at the same time, he's directed four movies. A second movie about track. He's probably the only director in American history who's made two movies about track. Uh, he, he did uh, Personal Best in 1982, which is a very good movie. Uh, also directed Tequila Sunrise, Without Limits, this one, and something called Ask the Dust, which I've never heard of. Never heard of it either. 
Um, but but as a, as a writer, he is quite prolific and was like you know at his height considered among the more influential writers in Hollywood. And if you look at the scope of his career, he's going to go down as you know a, a very very remembered part of you know like the Easy Riders and Raging Bulls era. Yeah, like you know, he, he he's done also his just the stuff that he did uncredited alone yeah. would make for a really interesting filmography. You know, forgetting what he actually did uh, credited. You know, there, there are certain people like Elaine May, the the great. Uh, she was part of um comedy team for a while, and then she uh, co-wrote The Birdcage. She was a amazing writer, but she's somebody that was known throughout her career as you know the one of the go to script doctors. And I, I believe Robert Town was somebody like that as well. But I mean, just Chinatown. I mean, Chinatown is considered by many people to be like one, if not the greatest screenplay of all time. It's certainly the sort of the go-to template yeah, oh, when, when people without teach question. screenwriting. Like I took a screenwriting class in college. We studied Chinatown. So, you know, that's, that's Robert Town. He's a very unusual career. So, but it's, you know, a, a very influential guy uh, produced by Tom Cruise. Do you know how much money this movie made? Yes, I do. About $770,000, which against its, I believe, $25 million budget, not a good return. No. And what we learned this year, um, and we'll get to this in a second, but like what we, in in a little deeper, it was actually, I think part of the reason it might have struggled, it was actually the second Prefontaine movie that was released in in a year or so. The calendar year of 1997, I believe, uh, pre with Jared Leto. Came out, which is not a, not nearly as good a movie as this one. Also, did not do well. So, if nothing no, else, this, this movie did significantly better. Pre only made about five hundred and twenty thousand. Yeah, what, what we really <laughs> learned so. from this like two year period in the late nineties is that audiences were not necessarily <laughs> thirsting for movies about <laughs> Steve Prefontaine. Although we clearly will, not. Although we will get into uh, Without Limits. It is really, really good. It's stunningly good. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It is so good. Um, and part of the reason, the performances, and we'll talk about that. Uh, it stars Billy Crudup as uh, Prefontaine. Donald Sutherland as the legendary Oregon coach, uh, track coach Bill Bowerman, who, of course, would end up being one of the, uh, the founders of Nike. Monica Potter played Mary Marks, uh, Billy Crudup's girlfriend, or Prefontaine's girlfriend in the, in the movie. Those are really the three people who matter uh, in, in the film, but there's a lot of other people in it. Uh, Jeremy Sisto from Law and Order, among other things, plays Frank Shorter, the great U.S. marathon runner. Uh, Matthew Lillard is in it, plays one of his teammates. Amy Jo Johnson. Matthew Lillard, like, by the he, way, former uh, one-time guest on our uh, previous ESPN podcast. He was promoting oh Trouble God, with the Curve, right. which is I a bad I forgot about that. It is. Uh, Amy, this is a good one, though. Amy Jo Johnson, uh, post- uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, but pre-Felicity, I believe. Um, you had an, a then-unknown Dean Norris. Dean uh, Norris, Uncle Hank yes. on uh, Breaking Bad. And our friend, Gabe yes. Olds, playing right. uh, Don Cardone. Don this, Cardone. The, the Stanford runner. He, if you see this movie, and we really hope that people will after this, he's the Stanford runner that tells uh, Prefontaine that he's crazy for running an entire race on this excessively bleeding right. foot. Um, he, he, and I, I, yeah, and I, I would be, I think we would be remiss, Andy, too, if we did not acknowledge the work of William Mapathor uh, in this film, who is 
one he plays one of uh, of the teammates and you're not going to know who this is if you're just listening to it but if you google him yes or see the movie you'll be like oh like william mapathor might be the ultimate oh that guy from television like he's worked consistently for like 25 years never with any real breakout roles he was in lost he was in save me but but like you know who this guy is from he's these that guy from TV. Okay, and and towards the end when we do our trivia, I've got some trivia about him that is I think actually very interesting in, in terms yeah. of his uh, whole career that does directly uh, relate to Without Limits. So one of the things that I think is is fascinating about this, you know, we talked about who's in it is like you know the the context around this movie and like where these people were. Billy Crudup was about two years from Jerry Maguire. But he'd started to kind of bubble up a little bit. You mean almost famous. Of, he was never in Germany. I'm sorry. A German, same director, right. Um, Different Cameron Crowe movie. Exactly. So he's, he's two years from uh, Almost Famous, which he is phenomenal in. And that really blew him. He'd started to kind of um, bubble up a little bit. Like he was in Sleepers. He was in Inventing the Abbots. And people were sort of noticing. He was a really accomplished stage actor uh, at that point. So Peter Travers from Rolling Stone, famous critic, wrote about Crudup in this review for, for Without Limits. Uh, Crudup's exemplary stage work had just overshadowed his lesser screen roles. No more. This film puts Crudup in the front ranks of his acting generation. Like people thought, and this was before Jerry, Mc, uh, I did it again, before Almost Famous. Like, like people, like the world was going to be taken over by Billy Crudup. Well, I mean, I the anticipation was because this movie was extremely well reviewed. I think the anticipation was that it was going to do well, and because mm-hmm. it was going to do well, this was going to be Billy Crudup's first starring yes. role. This was this was his first leading role that I think was in a movie that it was anticipated people would actually care about, and right. the expectation was this was going to blow him up. And like it, you said, it, it came. It did not because seven, you know, 73 people saw it, uh, most of whom were us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like in repeat viewings. Like, like we get credit for seeing. I'm fairly sure that of the $777,000 that this movie made, we contributed like 350K. Yeah. Um, but it's not just that, Andy. Monica Potter was also somebody that like looked like she was going to take over Hollywood. 1998 had this movie for which she got a lot of good write-ups. It also had Patch Adams, which is cloying and awful, but made $202 million in 1998 at the box office. That is a lot. That's a lot now. (laughs) That was certainly a lot then. Patch Adams, again, a cloying and awful film, made a ton of money. Um, She did, like, two years later, I think 2001, she did uh, Along Came a Spider. That was 105 million. It's a pretty good haul for 2001. And then she just kind of disappeared. And I think most of that has to do with the fact that she looked way too much like Julia Roberts. Yeah, she looked exactly like her. And I, if you look at early reviews for a lot of Monica Potter's work or articles about her when she's coming up, including reviews of Without Limits, mm-hmm. a lot of time is spent pointing out how much she looks like Julia Roberts. And I didn't actually even notice it until watching this movie again, but how much she actually kind of sounds like Julia Roberts. Similar, and, some similar the, the, mannerisms. R- like, And it is really difficult to, and she really, it's not an exaggeration. She, she, does, really, she really looks like Julia Roberts. And it is very difficult to 
resemble the biggest movie star of that decade, which Julie Roberts unquestionably was. And she's one no, of the biggest no question. She's one of the biggest stars of the last like half century. That is a very tough space to carve out as your own. And yes. you know, I, I don't know how <laughs> it's a it's a weird problem to have because in most situations you look exactly like Julia Roberts is not it's like a good thing. It's sure. like thank you very much. No, absolutely. Julia Roberts is a very pretty woman. Most people no, will no take pun intended. Most people will but I hope not. Most yeah, people uh no. <laughs> will take that gladly. But you know, in her particular case, it not was good. tough. I mean, look, things can be where I remember when uh the movie A River Runs Through It came out, uh Brad Pitt. You know, when he was young, and you can see it now, he's sort of aging uh, chronologically in the exact same way in terms of uh, facial evolution. But when he was young, he really looked like a young Robert Redford. Robert Redford. And Robert Redford directed that movie. And he also did VO for Craig Sheffer's character. He's playing Brad Pitt's brother. And there were people who thought that device was confusing because Robert Redford looks like Brad Pitt. So for some reason, Redford clearly established as the VO for the other character was confusing to people because he resembled a young Brad Pitt. And if that's going to be something that can can confuse people for one movie, imagine trying to spend your entire career looking like Julia Roberts. It's going to be tough. Again, it's a a strange problem to have, but it's one she's been saddled with. And so Monica Potter actually resurfaced in a few, you know, she was in Boston Legal and a couple of, but she, her big, she kind of went away, at least as a thing, and then resurfaced again in, on Parenthood on NBC, which is actually, was a good show. It ran for like six, five or six seasons on NBC and was a very good show, an ensemble cast, and she was very good on it. Um, and, but it, it is interesting to see these two, to these two actors who looked for a little bit, like they were going to be massive. And then, like Billy Crudup, it's not like he went away. Oh. He's done like 50 movies. And I'm not making that up. He's done like 50 movies and he works constantly. He's on and that, he's uh, he's on that good. Uh, new Apple TV show with uh, Jennifer Aniston, with, Steve Carell, right, the, the uh, newsroom show. Mor- the morning show. Right. I, I'm just saying it's a newsroom no, it's show. The one that's like, yeah. no, it's, it's called The Morning Show, I think. Right. Um, and then it also stars Donald Sutherland, who is Donald Sutherland, and at that point was Donald Sutherland and has remained Donald Sutherland. He's an excellent actor, is certainly an icon, and he's done plenty of crap. I mean, I think we can all agree that Donald Sutherland has done plenty of crap. So, like, it's an interesting cast to come together. Um, and I thought, you know, what sells this movie, um, it's very well constructed by Robert Town. It's very well directed. And Robert Town co-wrote it. Um, the performances from the three leads are spectacularly good. Billy Crudup and Donald Sutherland, particularly. Yeah. I mean, the, the relationship that they have is these two very controlling, very stubborn personalities, both very, you know, big in their own space and not very good at seeding ground, not typically looking to do that. And, you know, one of the things Billy Crudup does really well in this movie is not shying away from how off-putting Pre could be. Like, you know, he's Absolutely. he's got like a yes. weird personality. He is super competitive about everything. He is very arrogant. He can be confident to a fault. And to be honest, he can be kind of a dick. And, you know, in the beginning, before he, the first time he ever tries to change in this movie is about halfway through when he's trying to change for Mary, Monica Potter's character, because he really likes her. And she has said, you're not my type. You know, you're- Keeps I, rejecting. Keeps rejecting. And he- The only girl on the campus at the Univ- University of Oregon who rejects Right. Her. And 
up until the point of him saying, you know, literally, I, I will try to change for you. He's often really aloof and condescending towards her. And he treats her like, as you had said, one of the 100, 200 other, you know, 500 other women on this campus that would jump at the chance to sleep with him. He certainly assumes that that's right. I mean, he clearly likes her more than he likes these other girls. And he finds something specific about her. But but you know, but but even then, though, in the beginning, he seems like he's running game on her. And it's it's only after she forces him not to. I think even if he doesn't recognize that he's running game, like even if he's not specifically doing that, he's so not great with people that he doesn't really know how to interact on meaningful levels. Well, he's just, he, he I, yeah, I just, I took it more as he just didn't, he's just not used to having to work for it. You know, because Prefontaine in real life was a good looking guy. And obviously Billy Crudup is, you know, particularly, you know, 20 something years ago, um, about, you know, was, was and remains an extremely handsome man. Um, you know, so you, the character, like he's just not used to having to try. Um, you know, he's got a couple tricks. You know, they do a great job with like how he, you know, he gets shoes for free, and like half the campus is walking around in the same pair of like old school blue Adidas's. Um, like they do a really good job with well, the, the, the women. Like he he gives the women, yeah, the women he right. gives the women uh, uh, the running shoes Shoot. after their night together. That basically these at the time Adidas running shoes become his equivalent. Of the Derek Jeter fruit basket, you right, know, like the, 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 that he uh, you know legendarily used to send out to uh, different women, like you know the the gift basket I should send out a fruit basket. Mm-hmm. Except the problem is, unless the, unless it was a fruit basket as the gift, right? But the the problem <laughs> is, unlike a gift basket, you don't go out wearing them on your feet. And he right. got a little too uh, clever by half, and she ends up they they go out for coffee. And she ends up spotting these two girls who go up to him, hey, pre, hey, pre. And they're both wearing the they're, they're shoes, wearing shoes that he's going to give to her. Already gave her, right? Yeah. He already tried them on. She, because, you know, he stole her out of the, the room. He was supposed to be there to take he's the, Monica Potter's roommate on a date. She's like, I don't even have shoes. And she's like, he's like, that's fine. I'll take care of it. And like, you know, but you can see where that goes. And so, but like, the, that that relationship is really good. It's very well. She's not actually in the movie as much as I'm we're going back and watch it again. She doesn't have a ton of scenes, but the scenes that they have together are extremely believable and extremely well acted. Um, and she's important. Core, she's actually important. Yeah, she in the is. Movie. And it's not a it's not a, a useless side thing that, that's going on there because you have to have a love interest. Uh, the core of the movie is the relationship between Donald Sutherland and Billy Crudup, um, between Prefontaine and Bill Bowerman. And those two guys, it's, it's funny, like, I, do, should we play it now? The, the scene of the two of them um, talking and kind of about challenging each other. And yeah, let's, let's, this, is, this is like a scene that's kind of at the crux of this relationship where and you hear Bowerman say it in VO at the beginning, like, I spent my, my life trying to change pre, pre spent his life trying to resist change. And the discussion they have here kind of lays all that out. Repeated the 424 and then come home in 418. Made your last lap your fasting. That would add it up to 
1306. Compared with the 1312 you ran, your need to take the lead from the start cost you a good six seconds. Okay. Pre-the Olympics are in two years. Blink of an eye. You face the best middle distance runners in any games I can recall. Ian Stewart. Yeah, Kipkano, Gamudi. They all have strong kicks. Any one of them been near you on Saturday, they'd have had you dead to right. Well, maybe on Saturday, Bill, but not two years from now. Pre, can I ask you a question off the record? Were we on the record, Bill? Where does this compulsion come from? What compulsion? Front running. Look, Bill. Running any other way is just plain chicken shit. Chicken shit? Chicken shit. What else do you call laying back for two and a half miles and then stealing a race in the last 200 yards? Winning! Well, I don't want to do that. You don't want to win? I don't want to win unless I know I've done my best. And the only way I know to do that is to run out front and flat out till I have nothing left. Winning any other way is chicken shit. All right, so, you know, Andy, when you hear that, it's two things. It's first of all, it's two characters and two, you know, people in sports that are really pushing each other and probing and, and doing all this. It's also... I felt like the two of them took that same energy of these two characters and these two people pushing each other and challenged the crap out of each other as actors. Like, we are going to act. I'm going to make you work. Like, I'm going to be, you know, and, and I felt that come through and elevate these performances in ways that, you know, two very good actors, you expect them to be good anyway. But it just, they're as good as I've ever seen these guys, and I'm fans of both. Yeah, I mean, they, they're just very, very well paired off each other. You know, they're both, they're both really controlling personalities. And, you know, both, both of them, as the story goes along, learn to give a little bit. And both learn to understand where each other's coming from. Like, Pre is much more, and, you know, in particular, too, like, where they're trying to control each other is how, how Pre should race. Because Pre believes very strongly that he should be going balls out from the beginning to the end of every race, as opposed. He's a front, he's a front runner. As he's a front not runner. A, in the way that not in the way that we kind of look at front runners today, in the sense that like he's a person who must run out in front all the time, um, which is a much harder way to win track races. I, I think it was Bowerman who says you know. The person who's in the front works 8% harder than the people who draft off of him. And 8% is a ton at the Olympic level. Right. And, and Bowerman wants Pre to pace himself in certain ways and pace the way he's going to run this entire race, thinking about the, the big picture of that race. Right. And as Pre says, that's chicken shit in his mind. In his mind, you, this is... That goes against the purity of what you're supposed to be doing out there. You're not, you're not mm -hmm. supposed to be running in a way that's just about preserving victory. You're supposed to be running for the sake of pushing yourself and running for the sake of discovering what you're capable of doing. And mm -hmm. that's the way he wants to win. And what's really interesting is both of them eventually start coming around a little bit, you know, not entirely, but a little bit to each other's way. And you see at times pre running in the way that Bowerman wants him to, and it works. 
And then you see other times where he does what his coach asks him to, and it doesn't work. And he's angry because it's right. not the way he wanted to do it, and he the, did it the, anyway, the example, and he lost. And the example of that that I think is, is, is um, obviously most prominent in the film is the 72 Olympics when Prefontaine is running. I believe it's, it's the 5,000 that he's running, I think. It's either, I think it's the 5,000 meters. It just seems long to me. And strategically, he doesn't run out in front because, you know, Bowerman's point is like, these are the best runners in the world. They will chase you down. You, you, you can't win that way. Um, it's too much work. And so he, he sort of sticks to the plan a little bit, but he stay, he gets kind of caught up in the crowd and then, and he breaks out and eventually is out kicked, um, by the Swedish guy. And then, uh, fades in the downstretch and finishes fourth. So he doesn't get a medal. Um, not only does he not win, he doesn't even end up on the podium. And the people around it, whether it's Bowerman, other runners, like look at that race as one of the most brilliant races and amazing races that anybody's ever run ever. And Pre looks at it as a monumental total failure. And like you say, is just, you know, depths of anger at Bowerman for getting him to run that way. Um, there's no indication, you know, that Bowerman was even wrong necessarily, that if, if Pre had run out front like that from the beginning, he might have finished 10th, he might have finished 8th, he might have been nowhere close down the stretch. But in his head, like, that's what cost him. And he's so competitive, he can't live with it. Well, he also... It, the, he... And this is something that actually, it's, it's it's competitiveness and it's it's a, it's a, it's the compromise. Well, it, it's, it's the exactly there, there's to his ethics. There's so much in this movie when you when you watch Bowerman and Pre, you know that reminds me of the relationship between Phil Jackson and Kobe Bryant. Like, yep. a, a, and you know, we covered the second half of Kobe's career, which means we covered all of the five or six years that Phil spent uh, with the Lakers the second go around. And, you know, the, the first go around, the two of them had a lot of problems together. And a lot of it had to do with both of them having very set ideas of how you're supposed to be playing this game and how you're supposed to approach it and what your ethos is supposed to be. And those things combined with, you know, Shaq's presence in there and all sorts of other stuff made it so the two of them really could not get along. And then Phil ended up coming back and... You know, Two championships later, and it worked out extremely well. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you, but like the 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 Phil thing is very hard to ignore, especially if you know if you are a Lakers fan. Like, just like the introduction that you get to Bowerman is kind of pure Phil in in terms of like both philosophically and also it's a bit of a power play. It's a bit of a controlling thing. It, it, so this 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 is from this is the, the moment where where pre is sort of introduced to Bill Bowerman, the coach. Hey, Bob, what time is it? Seven twenty-four. Genesis. Exodus. Hey, why, why does Bowerman call a team meeting for seven twenty-seven? What's wrong with seven thirty? Hold on, I'll tell him why, gentlemen. 727 provokes the question, why 727? And everybody gets here at 727 to find out why. Well, you can picture Phil doing that, right, guys? Like, 
Guys, the meeting is at 727. Why is it 727? Because then you'll show up at 727 to find out why it's at 727. Yeah. Like that that felt to me like that feels like a Phil move. Well, and Bill ba- Bill Bowerman was at the time like a mystical figure in his yes. field and in Oregon. And, you know, he actually has to do something he never does to get pre to commit to Oregon, which is to actually uh, recruit him. Like Bill, ba- Bill Bowerman doesn't do that. Except Pre says, if he does not recruit me, I'm not going. So yes. he writes Pre a very perfunctory letter saying, I'd like you to come. And it's great detail. The return address just says Bowerman. Says Bowerman. And that's what it. What I like about it too is if you do us the great honor of, like, it's, a, it's kind of a, like a condescending thing. You know, if you do us the great honor of attending the University of Oregon, like, he's, he kind of lays it on there, like, okay, fine. You want a letter? I'll give you a letter. And, you know, that, you know, pre asks like later, a little bit later, is he, does he like do anything? Does he actually coach? Cause he's just running and nobody's, he's not saying anything. And he's like, and his, the teammates are like, he'll tell you something when he needs to tell you something. But and, and, the whole thing and that was very, was very Phil. Phil. Like, remember, you know, Phil would never call time in the minds of fans. He'd yes. never call timeouts. You know, he just sits mm-hmm. on the, he just sits on the bench and do anything. Like, you know, Phil was never into huge demonstrative showings of, coaching like he was very much about the mental preparation with his players and Phil also really did a good job of understanding his players and something that Bowerman does for all of his controlling nature he does actually respect his athletes as people you know there there's this great scene where he makes them get haircuts so they don't resemble Vietnam protesters and he right this is right after this happened at the University of Oregon a build the the, the building that housed uh, either I think it was the athletic department or something burned down right. because it also held the ROTC uniforms that were used uh, during the war. And he's like, I'm not telling you, he says, I'm not telling you that you have to support the war. I am telling you that we can't look like we are pro burning the building. Right. And that's, that is significant too, because Bowerman had a military background. So even as mm-hmm. somebody who spent time, you know, in the military, he's very st- pop, right? He, exactly. He was still very much willing to give his players that space. And again, in that relationship, you see, you see that uh, pre he approached this stuff like it was art, and that was something that I, I used to say about Kobe, and I actually wrote about that in a piece for the Athletic after Kobe's death. How it always felt to me like he was treating his career like this twenty-year masterpiece that was always, you know, in, in the works of being developed. It was always being sculpted right. a little more, always being painted a little bit more, but like he saw basketball as much, you know, art and purpose as he did just a game. And and the thing I used to always say about Kobe was he played basketball in a very specific way for very specific reasons. And, you know, for better and worse, depending on the context and the situation, there wasn't room for compromise. There there was some, and by the way, that scene where he's talking about like, you know, we all have to get our haircuts leads to one of the best lines in the movie where he says, everybody's got to get their haircut except uh, nobody's hair can be any longer than their dick, which means everybody has to get a haircut except for Bob. (laughs) 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 It was one of the guys on the team and Pri's like, why doesn't Bob have to get a haircut? And they sort of have to turn and explain to him like with like a hand signal, like, Bob's got it, um, as or as Bowerman puts it, God's will. Um, but anyway, so I just, it's a great line. But uh, now the ethics between Pre and Kobe weren't necessarily Kobe's 
Kobe's ultimate ethic was to win the game. Sure. But like whatever it is to like Kobe and that's but it was but important. Right. But it, it was, was important it was, to Kobe that he won a certain way. Otherwise, he would have never right. been dissatisfied playing with Shaq. It was mm -hmm. important no. to him to win right. a certain way. Like uh, to to find satisfaction and purpose in the game. It was important after a while to Kobe that he could show tangibly, I can do this with an entire team built around me as the number one unquestioned sure, I'm just, guy. I'm, all I'm saying is like when people go watch this movie, they, they might look at that relationship and feel there's some Shaq, or some Phil and Kobe kind of push-pull going on here. I don't know if they would look at it and say, I don't want people to leave with the idea of saying like pre's ethic was, you know, pre and Kobe were like the same guy because I don't think they necessarily were. But the specificity with which they looked at it with the idea that, you know, like the, the precision, um, the, the other thing that I think that, that the two guys were exactly the same is in, in the belief that will yes. was the most important thing. Yes. That to me is where Pre and Kobe were so similar is that Kobe firmly believed and he would talk about it, like that he was not the most talented guy. That there were other people that weren't talented, other people that were more athletic, and this, that, and whatever. Which is, you know, maybe sort of true in the most literal sense, but like the idea that Kobe Bryant wasn't, you know, incredibly gifted, that he wasn't, um, you know, supernaturally better than most of these people, and just in, in, in those God given ways, is ridiculous. It's, it's patently false. Go back and watch those videos of, of number eight Kobe. Kobe was a pretty that sick was athlete. He was a pretty good athlete. <laughs> he was a pretty nice little athlete. Right. As, as, you know, like the old people say when they see you, you know, playing, you know, AYSO soccer, he's a good little athlete. Like, you know, no, Kobe was a lot better than that. But he, he, you, that was part of what he believed because it was important to him to believe that he wasn't his because that's what got him to work harder. That's what got him to believe that he could outwill anyone on the floor. That he could out-tough them, out-pain them. And pre- says to Mary, like, what you, you want to know what my secret is? My secret is I can endure more pain than any human being can. When Bowerman comes to try to get us, after he loses in Munich, Pre kind of drops out of the game. He's just so kind of distraught by losing and how he lost that he can't get himself to run again. Um, and Bowerman tries to get him to come back so he can get training for the 76 Olympics, which of course he doesn't actually see. And he, he breaks it down for him and he talks about uh, Pree's vanity in believing that he is not talented and not gifted. And what, what that is and like the physical attributes that Pree has and all these things. And those, those parallels to me, I thought were very apt in thinking about Kobe because you know, Pre had to believe that he was lesser than other people because what he really thought got him through was will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I, I, I've seen this movie like you multiple times, but, you know, so many I haven't seen it in a few years. And, uh, you know, I think seeing it now, especially, you know, un unfortunately with, you know, Kobe's passing and, you know, it's still something that feels very weird. You know, I mean, yes. even in the weird times that we're living in now, it still yes. feels weird to me that, Co that Kobe's gone. Get weirder. Yeah, well, yeah, it does. It, it does. And it, but, you know, it, and, and, and we're talking about 
I, I, I don't say this to sound callous. We're sounding about talking about two dead icons. Uh, you know, Prefontaine, forty-five years later, is one of the only track. And this is not a country that cares about track. Or wants to watch movies about it, apparently. <laughs> $1.3 million between the, both, of the, both of the track movies. But, you know, pre, among sorts, but like still a person that, like, oh, I know that. That's the runner. That's the guy you know, from Oregon. Oregon had died. You know, it, he's kind of a cult hero. And Kobe, obviously, a much larger scale. But... In 15 years, 10 years, 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, what this Kobe sort of symbolizes and the, the place like the, this, this iconography around Kobe is only going to grow as people sort of get further away from the day-to-day realities of his life and it becomes as much symbolic as anything. It's already started happening. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it just, it really, uh, th- those dynamics really drove, were really driven home watching it again. Andy, the, uh, before we move on, the Last Dance documentary, you saw that one. Oh yeah. Uh, it's brought up an ongoing debate that no one will ever win. Is Michael Jordan the GOAT? Is LeBron the GOAT? One thing we do know for sure Manscaped is the goat for men's grooming. There's no, there's uh, not even Manscaped, a close second. There really isn't. And part of the reason is that Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below the waist grooming and hygiene. So, I mean, that elevates you to goat status just so you're willing to go there. Metaphorically and literally, they're willing to go there and that makes them the goat. Uh, ceramic blade, skin safe technology, uh, your snags reduced while designing your own triangle offense. Mm-hmm. Or Andy, I don't, I don't want to be the boss of you. Whatever shape you're feeling that day. <laughs> I don't know. Pick and roll feels ambitious when you're working down in that area. But yeah. I think that's for, that's for when you're really particularly start- particularly the pick part. Yeah, that, well, I mean, you got to really feel confident about uh, setting a pick when you're doing that down there. Yeah. But if you're going to, I guarantee Manscaped yeah. can handle it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to handle it a little bit, and then with Manscaped's help. Uh, but the Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with a new and improved lawnmower 3.0 water-resistant cordless body trimmer, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag for you to use when we're done t- quarantining. Nice. And we're all out uh, to go somewhere. Put that thing right in the bag and you go. Uh, you played safe with the lawnmower 3.0, get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. Again, 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. 20% off, free shipping, manscaped.com. Use the code, the athletic. Some of our other categories for this for this uh, in this podcast, we get into timelessness. We're gonna have a little trouble with that again. Fourteen people have seen this film. We'll get there. One thing we do though that we talk about is authenticity. I I I, I haven't watched a lot of track. I haven't watched a lot of track movies. But holy hell, this thing feels authentic to me. Well, I mean, there's a ton in it that feels authentic. I mean, just when you start looking into the way they dressed up uh, the Oregon campus to look, you know, of its period, the hairstyles, yes. the clothes, the music, like both the soundtrack and the the atmospheric score feel great for that period of the early 70s. Like they nail everything. They choose the songs well. 
Um, it's shot in a way, uh, Conrad Hall, the legendary cinematographer, uh, he shot the movie. And but again, another thing, it's like, why is this movie made under $800,000? Conrad Hall, Robert Town, Tom Cruise produced the thing. Well, I mean, it just it, it did not do well, did not register. It had a really soft opening. It only opened in five theaters I, with the, right, antis- the anticipation of it getting, yeah, the anticipation of it getting uh, a big, small, uh, you know, a, a small release, big uh, average, and that's not how it ended up working out. Uh-uh. But all the actors in the movie, looked like they trained with someone to get the physicality and the gates of runners. Like the race scenes, they're both filmed and staged exceptionally well. Like they make running look simultaneously graceful, like exhilarating. Mm-hmm. And I say this as somebody who finds track pretty boring to watch. It's like the 5,000 meters, right. the 10,000 But also meters. exhausting. Like, like a lot of laughs. We, we mentioned that our, our friend Gabe Olds is in this movie. And I... I remember talking with him after that movie, and he said it was pretty grueling. Like, you know, they, they sure had was, to run yeah. a lot in this movie, and, you know, obviously you shoot coverage, then you shoot tighter shots. Like, it, there was a lot of physical demands, and I think it shows in a good way. Uh, one thing that is kind of funny, though, that you notice from this and Personal Best, uh, the other track movie that Robert Town made, he loves shooting legs. That guy loves yeah. to shoot legs. And I remember when I saw Personal Best thinking it was more of a pervy thing <laughs> with Robert Town, like all the close-ups of Mariel Hemingway's legs and uh, the, I forget the name of the actress who uh, played her partner. But like in the beginning thing, it was a little bit pervy. But then I, I also noticed like shooting Scott Glenn's legs. And then in this movie, it's pretty much all men shooting legs. He, legs. he just loves to shoot yeah, legs he is. in shorts. He's a leg man. He is a leg man. Robert Town was a leg man, but it's something you'll you'll notice in the movie. Other things that I think speak to the authenticity of it. I went and watched a pre-race. I watched the one where he set the American record, which held for a long time. He still actually holds, I believe, the record for under 19. Um, holds the American record. But Billy Crudup looks exactly like when he runs like he he nails pre's running style not everybody runs the same way and pre had a very uh i guess particular physicality uh looked like when he was running not that i know anything about it, but like you know just looking at how he ran compared to how some of these other people ran in part because he was a little smaller i think but billy croup nails it like he he looks like pre running so even if you break it down on that level, and again, Billy Crudup's a stage actor, you know, uh, as originally, it's not surprising, I guess, that they, you know, he went to that depth and that level of of understanding and 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 uh, incorporating that kind of physicality. But so you, when you start to put all these things together, it becomes a pretty damn authentic movie. I mean, like I, I can't imagine track people looking at it and going, "No, no, it." it- I thought all those scenes were really, really convincing in the way that they were staged and, and the way the athlete, the actors uh, portrayed the runners just from a physical standpoint. One thing that is timeless, though, from the movie, I mean, despite the fact nobody saw it, uh, the points that it makes about uh, amateurism uh, yes. being a complete crock and the hypocrisy mm-hmm. that uh, fueled the system then and the system now of amateur student athletes. And, you know, when this movie was made in 1998, that was not as uh, prevalent a sentiment. You know, you didn't, no. you didn't hear people talk nearly as much about the inequities of that setup as you do right now. 
No, and it's the a, the AAU you know track and field thing, which was just I mean it was really screwed with people's amateurism. And one of the the legacies of pre, you know, because it's different than the AAU basketball. It's like the whole it's 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 not really comparable in that way. Um, but it was this this system that really controlled where athletes could go and where they could compete and all these things because they were anytime you defied them, you were at the risk of losing your eligibility for for the Olympics. Um, and I believe it was 1978 that the Congress passed a law that in a lot of a lot of people, for as much as Pre was considered an icon for what he did on the on the track. It was his, you know, sort of starting the the revolution in this area that a lot of people think he had had his most important contributions, and and that version of amateurism was really um, drastically drastically changed. Yeah. All right. Uh, before we get into problems with the movie, Andy, and I don't have many of them. I want to remind you, remind other people. We've got a lot of listeners in and around LA. Uh, of course, we started this as a Lakers podcast. Uh, we will eventually, I think, get back into Lakers podcasting when there's basketball talk. You about. and I have been Hopefully in keep- the LA media for like 20 years. Uh, we, yes. we both lived in this city for, you know, 25, 30 years, we're, depending we're, which. We're, we're iconic at this point. Right. Depending which one of us you're talking about. People in LA know who we are and they know that we know LA. Right. And uh, so they're loyal, they're engaged, um, and there's really no better way to advertise your business than uh, on this podcast. Uh, you go to www.theathletic.com backslash podcast ads, uh, podcast ADS ads, uh, and you can fill out a very simple form and we'll get back to you right away. Again, you go to www.theathletic.com backslash podcast ads today. So, I mean, like with Space Jam, for example, when we get there, you know, God bless Dave McMahon. I mean, he tried really hard to, <laughs> to, to convince me that this was a good film. Um, like, you know, I had trouble, like, is Michael Jordan, who the kind of guy who punched Steve Kerr in practice, going to tolerate the level of horrible play that he's getting from those Looney Tunes? I don't think he would be as kind to them as he was in that film. Like, there are a lot of problems. I love this movie and I watch it again and then I try to watch everything twice. And so I managed to do that before. I still can't find really anything significant that I don't like about this movie that I think doesn't hold up, that I think doesn't play as authentic. The performances are fantastic. The supporting cast is fantastic. The running is all super authentic. I guess you could take maybe some liberty, like they take some liberties, I guess, with the real life timeline of pre- I guess he has a different girlfriend for some of these stretches, and it's not just Mary Marks. There's another woman, and like, but I don't care about any of that. To be honest with you, it's a fa- it, what's wrong with this movie? What doesn't hold up? What am I missing? Nothing really. I mean, I, I think it's a really great movie. I mean, there's a reason that you and I, when we did, um, we did a podcast after the Athletic had their top 100. And we went through various parts of the top 100 sports movies, uh, according to the internal uh, voting at The Athletic. Right. And, you know, we brought up different points. Um, we brought up different points that are themes that sort of come out from that list. But we actually began our podcast with what we thought were the snubs or the movies that we were surprised didn't make the top 100. Like, for example, the movie 42 uh, about Jackie Robinson with Chadwick Boseman and Harrison Ford. 
Both of us think it's a good movie. We were both surprised that it didn't make the top 100. Um, we were both surprised that All the Right Moves didn't make it. But, right. but Without Limits, we pointed out, was the one snub that bothered both of us. Because this, this would have been, for me, well inside the top 10. It's a great I, movie. Honestly, it is one of the best sports movies I've ever seen. It is one of my favorite movies, period. But again, on a sports movie list, I really, and I don't have the list in front of me, I would have had this in my top, my, this would have absolutely 100% been in my top 10. It would have been very high for very me Very possibly could have been in my top five. It would have been very high for me, for sure. There's I mean, no I, question about I, it. I, again, I got to go back and I got to look at the list. And all that, but it very, very, very possibly could have been in my top five. And so for it to not be on the list at all is one of the only great failings that I think I've seen from The Athletic since we've joined uh, I've uh, been lucky enough to start writing there. But we are trying to fix that uh, through this right. actual podcast. And uh, actually in a roundtable that we just did um, about sports documentaries, in the comments section, I ended up talking with a reader and Without Limits came up somehow. I don't remember exactly, but I recommended it and he saw it and he loved it. So shout out to that guy. I'm hoping that he's listening to this show because I told him we no, were actually talking about Without Limits. Bump- That'll bump the gross up to somewhere around <laughs> seven hundred. You know, no, but it's cool though. I mean, you and I said that in choosing this movie, if nothing else, we're hoping we could turn on more people to it because yeah, it's a really it's, good movie. Couple, is, uh, I was going to say, a couple a piece pieces of trivia. trivia. Yeah, yes. Um, to begin, you had mentioned uh, William Mapether, uh, uh, Mapether, the actor. Mapether, Mapether. I don't. Know. I think it's Mapether. That guy from. T- I think it's Mapether. Um, Whatever. He's that guy from TV. Right. And he, you know, he's had a kind of a that guy career and he plays Bob, the religious runner in, in this movie. With a, as a, a giant schwanstein. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he is Tom Cruise's cousin. And Tom Cruise's actual last name is Mapother. And if you, you actually go. look at them, you can see certain similarities between them. Like they, like Tom Cruise is better looking than him, but there are facial similarities between them. Yeah, I can them. see that. A little family resemblance. And Cruz produced this movie, like we said before. And if you look at Mapether's IMDb, the early section is a lot of Cruz movies. He's in Vanilla Sky. He's in Magnolia. Mm-hmm. He's in Mag- uh, Minority Report. And like we said, he, he's had his own career now, exists as his own you know, character actor entity. But it seems like Tom Cruise early on uh, helped out his cousin, hooked helped him up. Him. So yeah, good, good on him. him. Um, as you had mentioned, Cruz was considered for the role, but he was ultimately deemed too old. He would have been around 35. Deemed too old by the producer, right? Tom Cruise. Well, he would have been around 35 when he made it. What kind of goes under the radar? Billy Crudup, truth be told, too old for the movie. He yes, was, but looked much younger. Well, he looked younger, but what helped, I think, was that he wasn't a leading man at this point. He wasn't really a known commodity. Like, I think if he had been a bigger star at the time, Right. I don't think he actually could have pulled it off. Like he was just well, on, he was it would just have pulled. It would have pulled all seventeen people who saw the movie out of it. Well, but I mean, in terms of the reviews <laughs> and stuff, no, it might have maybe. Um, I I think he was just unknown enough to make it work, just from a pure casting standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. Also, Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, Clint Eastwood, all considered for the role of Bill Bowerman. They all turned it down, which led to Sutherland. And this is one of those cases where I think all those guys, in particular Tommy Lee Jones, I think could have been good. But I'm really glad that it was Sutherland, A, because he's so good in it, but also he doesn't get as many chances at really great roles as those three. 
And what was interesting about it at the time was, and this is probably going to come as a surprise to a lot of people listening, Donald Sutherland has never been nominated for an Oscar in his entire career. He was, he was nominated he's for a Golden Globe for this, for this. Yeah, he was. And he's, he's had seven Golden Globe nominations, but only three of them have actually been for movies. It's for mm-hmm. this one, MASH, and Ordinary People. And well, I, think, I think it's because Donald Sutherland, as good of an actor as he is, has made a ton of crap. He has, but he's also made some really good movies, too. He has, I mean, but you know, he, I, I agree with you. But he just, you know, he's one of these guys who kind of but he's also, is really good. But, but he's also respected enough and has been sure. around long enough. And there are certainly a lot of other actors who've done a lot of crap and have managed to get nominated at least once. Mm-hmm. I imagine it would be pretty surprising to people that he's never been nominated. And there had been a lot of talk that he was going to get nominated for this movie. He ultimately didn't. And at the time, the reaction was much bigger about Bill Murray not getting nominated as Best Supporting Actor in Rushmore. But there was still a little bit of a surprise with Sutherland. And if, if you look at the field, um, it's pretty competitive. It was uh, James mm-hmm. Coburn who won for Affliction, uh, Robert Duvall who was a civil action, Ed Harris from The Truman Show, uh, Jeffrey Rush from Shakespeare in Love, and Billy Bob Thornton, who is incredible in A Simple Plan. He's just absolutely incredible. Um, So you can see where Sutherland didn't make it, but you can also see where maybe he could have, should have gotten in. Absolutely. But either way. It is a stunningly good performance. Either way, still has never been nominated for an Oscar, which I think is pretty amazing. Uh, I should point out to Billy Crudup, I think the thing that actually really saves Billy Crudup in terms of looking age appropriate is that everybody who went to college in 19, in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, and into the 80s, they all looked like they were 29, 30, 40 years old. That is true. Like there was a clip, I, I, it was a Jeff Perlman who put it out. Who put up that clip of Miami baseball? I think it was Jeff uh, Perlman. Like some, it was like some, some trick play that. Uh, the Miami ran in like 1980 and the big takeaway first was, wow, that was a cool play. And second of all, how are any of those people in college? Yeah. None of those people look like they should be in college. Um, so I think that helped too. the era. Everybody's looked older. Yeah. Well, everybody, uh, had everybody had mustaches. mustaches and long hair and whatever it was. Um, so yeah, I got no, I got no complaints about this one. I, I just, I, I, is it clear, Andy? I love this movie. I think you've made like, that pretty clear. This movie. I'm not picking up on that. Um, like the only other movie that I will geek out on this hard in terms of my unadulterated love when we get to it is Searching for Bobby Fischer. That is a great movie. That is a great movie. I don't movie. think there are two sports movies that I, there may be some that I think might be a little bit better. Your Raging Bull, whatever. It might be just a better movie. Uh, Rocky is probably, a, I mean, overall a better movie, I guess. Like, like, these are two movies that I just love. Um, so, should we give it some rings? Should we cast yeah, some rings? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Timelessness, we talked about pop culture penetration, zero uh, impact on sports movie culture. Pretty Probably low. zero. Um, but maybe, again, we can change that. So, uh, how many rings for this one? I'm giving it nine. It's a damn good movie. It's a really, really good movie. I loved it then. Uh, like I said, seeing it for the first time in a few years, you know, I I had no doubts that I would think it held up and that it was still really good. But it's it's a it's, really it's just a really good yeah. movie. So I'm giving it nine. I'm I look at the the rating system. There are two ways to do this. You could either do it like you ha- you have to 
save room to give a 10. Or you can just look at it like 10 is the highest number. If you can't find any complaints about something, the movie is a 10. And it's like the max contract. Like Bradley Beal is a great player. He's not as good as LeBron. They both are on max deals. I, it's kind of how I'm looking at this. And this, I, 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 I can't say literally nothing about this movie that is negative for about an hour and then turn around and give it an 8 or a 9. It's a 10. I'm giving this a 10. It's a 10. Fine. Give it a 10. This movie is a 10. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, it is. And there it are other is, movies out there that are also 10s. This is, there's, there's nothing that isn't great about this movie. It's really good. It's a really good movie. I mean, I hope, I hope our enthusiasm for it and the, the descriptions and the themes that we've laid out will get some people to actually seek it out. Um, it's, it's currently on Amazon right now to rent it. You could find it at YouTube, I'm sure. It's iTunes. On, yeah, it's, it's I actually think that you can watch it. You might be able to watch it for free on Vimeo, but it might be in Spanish. But (laughs) I do recommend watching it in English. Yeah. Unless you don't speak English, I suppose. Uh, Even then, I would watch it. I would watch it in English English because subtitles. Exactly. Um, You get the better performances. Exactly. But it it is. I hope people will seek it out because it really is a good movie. Um, All right, so uh, we'll be back next week uh, with a a different guest, perhaps, um, and a different film. But uh, this one is one of our, obviously, our personal favorites. And so we hope you go out and see it, and we will see everybody next week. 